goes, I, I want to say to you that today's service is going to end a little differently. I'm going to preach on worship, and then we're going to spend a little time in worship before we go. Okay? Okay? Uh, understand that our services are not always going to be in the same order. I, I love a situation where we said we were going to worship, we said we were going to pray, and we said we were going to learn, okay? Sometimes we're going to flip those around a little bit. <laughs> this morning, this morning following the message, we're going to spend some time with a couple of great worship songs and just allow us to go before the Lord in worship, okay? Amen? Amen. Our text this morning... I sat you down. I'm going to stand you back up. Our text this morning is from John chapter 4. Let's stand and as we, uh, as we read the Word of God together. As I read these scriptures, you're welcome to read along or just listen and, and, and take them in. But this morning we're in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. The Bible says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Lord, this is your word. I pray that you would teach it to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. As we talk about worship this morning, I would like to ask you a question. What was one of the most impactful, memorable worship experiences you have ever had? I want you to think for a moment. Was there a worship experience in your life that you'll never forget? That had deep, that had deep impact on you? Maybe it was a large corporate gathering. I will always remember a Promise Keeper's worship experience in Indianapolis in 1994. Never forget it. You've not lived until you've heard 70,000 men sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God. I mean, it was powerful. Maybe it was a church service such as we are in today. Or, or maybe just a quiet time in the presence of the Lord. As we consider worship in spirit and truth this morning, I want you to just tuck that memory in the back of your mind today as we, as we walk through the scriptures. What was that moment that, that God impacted you? And, and, and you know, um, in these huge gatherings like Promise Keepers, I realized, and I think I realized it in Washington, guys, I think I realized that although there are hundreds of thousands of men there in that situation in D.C., God spoke to me individually. God dealt with me personally that day in the midst of thousands. What about this thing we call worship? Some scholars through the years have taken a shot at definition. The great Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe says, Worship 
is the believer's response to all they are. Their mind, emotions, will, and body to what God is and what God says and does. Theologian John Piper says, Worship is what we were created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory. And he created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. John Piper. William Barclay says this, The true, the genuine worship is when man through his spirit attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place. It is not to go through a certain ritual or liturgy. It is not even to bring certain gifts. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God who is immortal and invisible. And then my favorite, Mike, if you could pull this next slide up, my favorite is from Louis Giglio, current uh, pastor and, and, and leader of young people. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. I'd like you to read that with me. Go back one slide, Mike. Read this definition with me. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. I like that definition. Our text this morning is part of the passage in John 4 in which Jesus has an exchange with a Samaritan woman by a well. It is a well-known passage that most of us would be familiar with. Let's explore this passage a little bit and find out what God has to say to us through the Word. John 4 and 1, if you want to open your Bibles and follow along, beginning uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 4 of, of John, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, it was his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Tuck that in your memory for a moment. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Can, can you feel that moment? A hot, hot day in the sun. Jesus had been traveling, not by air-conditioned SUV. And he came to the well about noon when a Samaritan woman came down to draw water, a local woman. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is <laughs> that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you, remember, living water. Living water. Our first point in understanding what's going on in this scripture is this. Jesus offers life to all, not just the Jews. Jesus offers life to all, not just the Jews. The text says that Jesus had to pass through this area of Samaria. Samaria was not, I say was not, the population center of the Jews. Rather, the Gentile Samaritans, a people group that the Jews did not associate with in that culture in that day. And the text makes it clear that this conversation was, number one, with a woman, which Jewish men refrain from, and number two, a Samaritan woman at that. Jesus, listen, Jesus was already breaking down the walls between people groups. You and I are certainly the benefactors of the heart of love that Jesus has for all people. Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus describes himself as the gift from God who is able to give living water. How intriguing this language must have been for this Gentile woman. Can you imagine? Her ears were burning hearing what he had to say. Moving on to verse 11. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, this water will be thirsty again. I envisioned Jesus <laughs> sitting on the edge of the well and going, Everybody who drinks of this water... <laughs> will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. <laughs> give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Second point that we learn in this passage Jesus always gets to the point of a person's need. Jesus always gets to the point of a person's need. Not only did Jesus offer the gift of living water, but he revealed himself to the woman by telling her the state of her life and relationships. He had never personally met this woman, had he? Jesus got to the heart of her deepest needs, but 
But friends, listen, not with condemnation. In, instead, with a, with a tone of love and compassion, I believe the tone of Jesus' voice was not, you sinner. You've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. You sinner, I condemn you. No. I, I, I think that Jesus' voice is compassionate and his offer of living water is the ultimate in compassion. He got to the point of her need. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Verse 19. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is Jerusalem. Third point that we understand here. The woman chose to ask Jesus a question about worship interesting of all the questions that the Samaritan woman at the well could have asked Jesus she wanted to know about what about worship about worship I find that very interesting I find this part of the conversation especially interesting of all the questions that she could ask she approaches the subject of worship and specifically where, say where, specifically where God should be worshipped. We find out that her perception of the worship of God had to do with specific locations and by inference certain rituals. Remember what she said? She said, our forefathers worshipped on, I, I see her pointing to a a hillside. The Samaritan woman's uh, ancestors worshipped, in quotes, their gods on this mountain that was near where they were sitting. Her understanding at that point in her life was that, that the Jews, God's chosen people, were required to worship where? In Jerusalem. Although it would be understandable to think that with what she probably knew of the God of the Jews. Her whole concept of worship and relationship with God was about to be turned inside out and upside down, friends. Her concept of God, her understanding of worship had to do with her ancestors and therefore us, my generation, we worship on this mountain, say on this mountain. And her understanding of what she knew of God's chosen people, the Jews, were that they worshipped in Jerusalem. Say, in Jerusalem. So she conceptualized that worship has to do with a location, with a place. Then in verse 25, or I'm sorry, in verse 21, Jesus, with one of his Jesus' replies to questions are just awesome, aren't they? <laughs> Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, say the word yet, Folks, those bridge words, look for them all the time. That's a bridge word in this scripture right here. She, he says, 
y'all don't know what you're doing. The Jews should know what they're doing. Yet. Yet. Or, however. Or, therefore. Or, 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 or. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, say true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Rather than a mountain, rather than a city, spirit and truth. Whoo! For they are the kind of worshipers, and then he really blows her away, they are kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. A fourth point here. Jesus removes worship from restriction to a certain place and places it in the heart and mind of the worshiper. Wow! We're going to explore this idea of worship in spirit and truth in a moment. But I want you to notice here that Jesus tells her that the Father is seeking, say seeking, seeking true worshipers. Those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's right, isn't she? And then he says, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. Rabbit trail alert. I heard a conversation one time um, among some people talking about whether, whether God is real and whether Christianity is true and, more importantly, whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. And this person said, Jesus never said he was. He didn't read John 4. <laughs> he didn't read John 4 and several other passages. Jesus clearly taught that he was the one that Israel had been waiting for. Amen? He was the Messiah that was to come. He says, I am he. I'm thinking of the burning bush for a moment. Remember? Moses looked at the burning bush and said, what in the world? And, and said, and, and, and this burning bush spoke to him, and, 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 and Moses said, who do I say that you are? Remember what God said? God said, I am, I am that I am. Jesus says here, I am he. Powerful. Jesus makes clear that he is the Messiah. He leaves no doubt as to who he is. It is interesting that this woman, a Gentile Sumerian, knew that there was a Messiah to come. Yeah, I find that interesting. I find that interesting that, that, that someone from another culture, someone from another quote-unquote faith, someone whose ancestors worshipped on this mountain, somehow she had heard that there was a Messiah to come. It, 
It makes me wonder how widely the knowledge of the true God had spread throughout that part of the world in that day. It makes me think of the wise men from the east who clearly knew about a special child to be born and followed a star to reach him. Somehow they knew. I don't know how wide the stories went, you guys. I don't know, I don't know how much of the world found out about the parting of the Red Sea. I don't know how much of the world found out about the water from the rock when Moses struck it with a staff. I don't know how much of the world found out about the seven plagues upon, upon Egypt. But the word had spread. And, and I imagine a conversation a, around a couple of tents and a campfire with some smelly, with some smelly camels nearby. And, and somebody saying, have you heard that there, there's talk that there's to be a Messiah to come and he's to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now we come to our text in verse 23 and 24. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So what about worship in spirit and truth? Worship in spirit and in truth. You're going to get tired of me saying that till the end of this message. You remember in our message last week, we talked about what Jesus called the greatest commandment. And, and we studied from Matthew, the 22nd chapter, remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. We discovered that loving the Lord, of, the Lord your God involves the whole person, didn't we? Heart and soul and mind and strength. The entirety of who we are as God's created children is active in loving God. A similar principle applies here. I see that, I see that verse of the greatest commandment echoed here when Jesus says they that worship will worship what? In two aspects. In spirit and truth. Listen, the true worshiper engages both the heart and the head. Come on, that's pretty good. The true worshiper engages both the inner man and the intellectual man. Come on, I, I need you to think with me here. I need you to think with me here. True worshiper engages both the heart and the head. The spirit and the mind. We talked last week about loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus reinforces this idea here in answering this woman's question about worship. Rather than worship being focused on a particular location or even a particular day of the week, the whole person idea surfaces again here. All that we are. 
The word spirit here is from the Greek pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, the inner man, the force that makes man a live being, the seed of emotion and will, the breath of man, that which is made alive in Christ. It also refers to the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Jesus in John 3 said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. The word spirit here, or, or I'm sorry, the word truth here is from the Greek aletheia, and it means reality or truth or true fact. In Greek culture, reality is opposed to illusion or misunderstanding. The ultimate truth is the blessed word of the living God, friend. The ultimate truth is the blessed word of the living God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, say truth, and truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Way, truth, and life. Christian worship engages both the heart and the head. The theologian John Piper sums it up as a strong, as strong affections for God rooted in truth. Strong affections, love for God, but grounded and rooted in what? Truth. Worship must be vital and real in the heart. And worship must rest on a true perception of who God is. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion, this is a great quote. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full, or half full, of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates, cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship, listen, comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Are you thinking with me this morning? Deeply emotional people that love the truth of the Word of God. Deeply exuberant radical worshiping people who can't get enough of God's truth. Hmm. Strong affection for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Look at the statement on the screen. That is the bone and marrow of biblical worship. To say that we must worship God in spirit means, among other things, that it needs to originate from within, from the heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and gratitude for all He is and has done. Worship cannot be mechanical or formalistic. Although liturgy or rituals are, are, are not ruled out here, but it demands 
that all symbolic words or actions be infused with heartfelt commitment and faith and love and zeal. It generates from the heart of the inner man. The word spirit here may also be a reference to the Holy Spirit, friends. The Apostle Paul said that Christians worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3. It is the Holy Spirit who awakens in us an understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It is the Holy Spirit who stirs us to celebrate and rejoice and give thanks. It is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see and experience all that God is for us in Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit within who I hope and pray orchestrates our services and leads us in corporate praise of God. The emotional and heartfelt expressions of our love for God will be a vital part of our thanksgiving, our praise, and our worship. I pledge that to you, my friends. Pastor Daniel, who spoke to the men at our breakfast yesterday morning, reminded us of how good God is. <laughs> and to express it back to him every day. Man, I appreciated those words. He, he used this. He said, every, every morning I get up, get up from my, God, you've woken me up. Praise you, God. Thank you, God. Both arms raised in thanksgiving and praise to God. He gets gas at Costco. He raises his head. Thank you, God, that you allowed me to get gas at Costco. I've never seen anybody with both hands raised at Costco by the gas pumps. But I, I would love to see Brother Daniel buy gas at Costco. Man, I appreciate it. Those were such encouraging words to me. Express it back to him every day. You remember last week I, I shared with you what I thought was that most powerful lyric that's been written in a long, long time. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. I love that lyric. I love that lyric. You get blessed? Praise him! Don't you dare forget where blessing comes from. I don't want to go there right now. i got more to talk about. How can we not give joyful, heartfelt praise to God who has been so, so good to us? I will remind us regularly as your pastor that he is most worthy of all that we can express to him in praise. This worship, however, must also be in truth. You know, in a way, that's easier for us to understand. For it obviously means that our worship must conform to the revelation of who God is in Scripture. I said, our worship must conform to the revelation of who God is in the Scriptures. It must be informed by who God is and what He is like. Our worship must be rooted in and tethered to the realities of biblical revelation. God forbid 
that we should ever sing or speak or proclaim false doctrine, I pledge to you that I will be the guardian against false doctrine. I've heard some songs that I've loved the, the, the melody and the chord structure, and, but then there's this thing, and I'm going, eh, I'm not so sure about that. You know? Worship is not meant to be formed by what feels good. Come on now. Worship is not to be formed by what feels good, but in the light of what is true. Genuine Christ-exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. Never. It must be doctrinally grounded and focused in the truth of all we know of our great triune God. To worship inconsistently with what is revealed to us in Scripture is ultimately going to degenerate into idolatry. That was a mouthful. Let me give you that again. To worship inconsistently with what is revealed to us in Scripture is dangerous, and it ends up being idolatry. There are those people in churches who desire to worship only in spirit, but couldn't care less about truth. In fact, they think that focusing on truth has the potential to quench the spirit. The standard by which they judge the success of worship is the thrills and chills that they experience. Now make no mistake, worship that does not engage and inflame your emotions and affections is worthless. Do I sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here? Not trying to. Trying to help us understand. Jesus himself criticized the worship of the religious leaders in his day, saying that whereas they honored God with their lips, their hearts are far from him. Matthew 15, 7. True worship must engage the heart, the affections, and the totality of our being. But any affection or feeling or emotion that is stirred by error or false doctrine is worthless or worse, dangerous. Can you understand now why I edited this sermon multiple times this week? I really want us to understand this. I really do. Remember, we're going to worship, we're going to pray, we're going to learn. Now let me flip the coin. Others, other churches or individuals or groups, prefer only to worship in, in truth. And they are actually offended when they or others feel anything or experience heightened emotion. They only want to worship in truth, in truth, in the truth. Recently, a prominent evangelical pastor said this, I often wish that we wouldn't sing or have music, but that I could simply see and say the words or the lyrics 
that express biblical truth. I don't like being distracted by the emotions that rise up in me when we sing to musical accompaniment. <laughs> by all means, let us sing and proclaim what is true. But to do so without affection and feeling and heartfelt emotion is unfathomable to me. I don't know how you do that. How do you sing? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow and not get a little emotional about it. I don't get it. I said a few moments ago that I, I, I couched it with, this is a powerful statement, I want to say this again. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces an empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. I've known some churches that are a mile wide and an inch thick and an inch, and an inch deep. Known some churches that are they're deep thinkers, deep thought, but no reach. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Can I say that again? Guys, there it is. True worship comes originates, is generated from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrinal truth. I love the deep places in the Word, you guys. I just got to tell you that. I, I, I love to dig something, dig a nugget out there. Pastor Dube, when you prepare to preach, you, you, you're digging through a text and you go, wow, look at that! An aha kind of moment. You know? You, you see, you see, emotion is generated when we realize and we understand the depth of the truth of who God is. Come to a good understanding of, of God's omniscience sometime. It'll make you shout. Look up that word and chew on it a bit. Part of our part of our uh, leadership focused training to become ordained in the church of God was, was to write uh, 18 theological statements. Steve, does that make me a theologian? I wrote, I wrote 18 theological statements and they passed the bar exam. Uh, you know, they <laughs> so, so one of them was Scope out the characteristics of God. Who, essentially, who do you say God is? I spent some time on that one, kids. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I got an A. Rhonda, Rhonda posted the comments on our refrigerator. <laughs> but when you start to explore the characteristics of who God is, you can't help but get excited to be his child, friend. <laughs> He's a pretty awesome God. 
some would say that it is difficult to find that balance of spirit and truth. Or even impossible to express heartfelt, enthusiastic praise and worship and still be devoted to the truth of the Word of God. I disagree. And Jesus disagrees. And the Bible disagrees. God forbid that we should ever find ourselves individually or as a church falling, failing to, I'm sorry, failing to worship God in both spirit and truth. Genuine, Christ-exalting worship is the fruit of both heat and light. Heat and light. The light of truth shines into our minds and instructs us about who God is. Such light in turn ignites the fire of passion and affection and the heat of joy and love and gratitude and deep satisfaction. Some people will eventually concede that there is too much emotion in some churches. Some others will, will insist that there is too much doctrine. Some will say we're too experiential in our worship, while others will contend that we are too theological. Personally, I don't think you can have too much of either. Just as long as they are both embraced, and as long as God is honored. Remember what I said about our worship last week? We're going to worship vertical. We're going to worship vertical. We're not going to worship the church. going to worship vertical. None of this means that you have to worship the way the other people in church do. If the truth of God's word moves you to lift your hands or shout out loud or wave a banner, God bless you. If the truth of God's word leads you into solemn reverence as you remain seated and unmovable or kneeling, God bless you. But let's make certain that in either case we are worshiping in both spirit and truth. For it is just such people that the Father is seeking. His deep love for his children shines through when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Yes, certainly we come seeking him, but the, oh man, I've got to start this one over. This is a good statement. Yes, certainly we come seeking him, but the truth of Jesus' words here are that the Father is seeking us. Those who desire to worship him in spirit and in truth. My dear friend, Mitch Birch, you may have heard Mitch preach at camp meeting, pastored Dayspring for a number of years. And uh, in mid-sermon, he would kind of step up to the front of the pulpit and he'd lean his elbow and he'd say, can I pastor you for just a minute? He would say that. I don't nearly place myself in the category of that man in his heart as a pastor, but can I pastor you for just a minute? Amen. 
stop worrying about what other people might think about how you worship. Please, for me, if for nobody else, for me. There is going to be order and decency in our worship. Don't, don't go running away from me here. Don't go running down the street to find a place, <laughs> to find a place where they don't get so crazy. But when you start to come to understand some of the depth of the truth of the Word of God, let's just say when you realize about His love, about His unmovable, completely consistent, new every morning love, y'all, if you get a little excited, I'm okay with that. Huh? Now, the Church of God raises a hand. If you get real excited, you might raise, you might raise two. I don't know. Maybe you guys can tell me you've been in the Church of God longer than me. I heard once that, that the Church of God raises the right hand in praise so they can reach the left hand into their wallet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Folks, see... See, the things that we categorize, the things that we categorize as far as, as worship with our bodies, and remember we talked about worship is not just with, with our brain or our voice. Our bodies are involved in worship. Yes, they are, folks. Yes, they are. You know? You know? Have, you, have you knelt recently in, in, in just worship and honor before the Lord? I think that's pretty legit. We used to talk about postures of of worship. Maybe we'll do a maybe we'll do a session on that postures of worship. Say posture. 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 So we place when you when you place yourself physically in a posture of worship, it affects what you are feeling emotionally and what you are thinking. When you're brave enough to raise that little old hand and say, I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord, it does something inside of you as well. Your body affects your mind, it affects your body. Amen. You, you, can't, you can't have one without the other. What's that say? Can't have one without the other? And, and never mind. Uh, wow. That was love and marriage, is it? Love and marriage. Love and marriage. You can't, I, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that that flitted into my when you when you have a musician as a pastor, you're gonna just encounter some of this stuff. Wow. Folks, will you go on a journey with me? To come to a deeper understanding of who God is and react to it in worship. There it is. To come to a deeper understanding of who God is and His impact on our lives and then react to it. Remember our definition? Worship is our response to God and who He is 
and what he has done. What if we go deep into who he is and what he has done? Worship is our response, our reaction to that. All right? This morning as we close, we're going to practice. We're going to... Musicians love to rehearse. You know, they love to go over and over and over again. I don't mind if we go over and over and over again the greatness of God. I'm not going to instruct you in this worship time. We're going to take several minutes here, and there are three songs that are going to play.